Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guest is Carl Decker. Carl is a five-time Downeyville champion, a three-time U.S. single speed champion, and in 2008, he won the World Single Speed Championship. He's currently part of the Giant Factory off-road team and just recently helped put on the Single Speed World Championship race held in Bend, Oregon. Thanks for joining us, Carl. Hey, my pleasure. I want to start by asking you, how did you get started? When did you start racing bikes? It's been a family affair since the beginning. My dad was into bikes back before it was cool, I guess you could say. <laughs> and he actually like rode his Schwinn across the country when he was 20 years old, you know, back, oh, be- wow. back before, uh, you know, sunblock and helmets <laughs> and stuff like that. So we were doing mountain bike races when I was nine. Wow. Which predates mountain bikes for kids. So my brother and I were on BMX bikes and, you know, my dad he was a state cop and he, he got some vacation by then he built some vacation time and we'd spend like a month every summer chasing local bike races and camping and, and, uh, just riding our BMX bikes. Yeah. Were there many other kids your age that were racing at that time? There were not that many. We were kind of outliers. And honestly, I, it's hard remembering cause we were little kids. There were probably a lot of juniors, mm-hmm. but you know, when you were nine, my brother was seven at the time uh-huh. when you're seven or nine years old, like a a 16 year old kid looks like a 28 year old (laughs) person because you just don't know like, Oh, that's a man, you know? (laughs) So yeah, we had tiny little bikes and, you know, we used to do some touring and we rode to the Oregon coast when in 84, you know, I I say this, it, it kind of makes my parents sound like terrible, pushy little league parents, but my brother and I were just begging to do this stuff like it was this is what we wanted to do and my parents went out of their way to have this experience and and do this all together it was a really neat formative time and that's kind of what brought me to where i'm at today yeah that's really cool so when did you finally end up going pro so i raced mountain bikes from 84 on i mean my first mountain bike race was here in bend and it was you know there wasn't a kid's course it was a 31 mile bike race whoa yeah from mount bachelor down into town and there was no single track because there was no mountain bike trails before there were mountain bikes <laughs> so i started with that and uh that made me pretty fit generally compared to other kids so i ended up running in high school and being a pretty good runner and that allowed me to go to college mostly for free at university of portland mm-hmm. so i actually stopped racing for four years and went to, to school and just ran and focused on that did you think you were going to be a, a professional runner or something like did you have aspirations beyond just paying for school you know that was my track i hope i would hope to do that i mean that was totally unlikely there's no money in running unless you can win <laughs> international marathons right and win a mercedes at, at new york or whatever <laughs> It was that was unlikely. I didn't know what I was going to do. My father was a state cop, as I said before, and he and I are very similar. We're into cars. He was actually a, a pursuit specialist with the with the police department, so he chased people around. Ooh, that sounds fun. Yeah, he like you know drove around in Mustangs and Camaros and like chased after <laughs> bad guys. Cool. <laughs> so I thought that was cool, and I actually ended up kind of studying criminal justice in college, just because you know I was realistic by then, but. I wasn't going to be winning the New York marathon and, uh, I wasn't going to be a professional bike racer either, which was, you know, that was my childhood dream for a long time, but I was realistic about, you know, I'm just a mediocre runner at this point and, uh, and just lucky to get through college without a bunch of, uh, of debt. So, uh, I got back into riding my bike after college in 97, I graduated and, uh, raced as a, 
semi-pro for a year and then turned pro in 98, I believe. Okay, cool. And was that racing mountain bikes or did you start out with road bikes? Okay. It was racing mountain bikes. I didn't do too much road stuff or too much. I didn't race any cyclocross back then. I wasn't into that yet and I wasn't around as much, but yeah, so it's been 20 years, I guess, that I've been a pro. Yeah. I'm the world's oldest living professional mountain biker. <laughs> right. And you're still getting after it. I mean, you're not, you're not retired by any means, right? No. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm still competitive. Uh, I know, you know, I, I'm getting weaker in some ways, but I'm getting cagier and, and <laughs> more adept at reading my competition and picking, picking the day to, to make, stake my claim, I guess. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about, you know, you've been racing for longer than some of your competition has been alive. So have you had to change things up a little bit in order to keep fit and competitive? I mean, I know a lot of our listeners are, you know, they're getting up there in in age and they're worried about keeping up with mountain biking. Like, how are you able to do that? Yeah. You know, I have those same worries and, and every year I think, Oh man, this is going to be the last year. Cause I see these people, you know, you watch people and they these two are France racers. They're like, they're good when they're 28. And but then they're, you know, I'm 30, I'm too old, I'm done. Yeah. I, every year, like it gets a little harder maybe to kind of get into shape and a little more time. And you think maybe it's just not going to happen. Why is that? I mean, is it, is it injuries or is it, it's just your body doesn't respond to the training like it used to? Body response to the training. Okay. I think it's just it, what I really noticed. And especially in the last five years, I'd say it's just I need more and more recovery. Like I just can't recover. You know what, what, when I was, when I was a middle-aged bike racer in my thirties, like in my early thirties, mid thirties, like that was kind of old for being a pro racer. Yeah. And, but then I could, you know, I could do three hard days and then take three easy days and then do another three hard days. And now it's more like, you know, two hard days and seven easy days and then another hard day. Uh, I like to say that like the bad part about getting old is that you need to take more rest days, but the good part about getting old is that you get to take more rest days. <laughs> so you just, I honestly, I just can't work as hard as I once could. It'll just break me down. And, and I, I just can't, you know, I'm, I'm easily reduced to ashes if I, if I, uh, if I work too hard, yeah. like, it's hard to come back from that. So a lot of it is just being smart about it and, uh, and forcing yourself to acknowledge that you're not what you once were, but you're most of what you once were. And if you, if you're careful about things, you can, uh, still be competitive. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of what you're able to do too is, is use sort of different strengths now, I guess that you're older, like you, you know more about how to train and you know more how to, for sure, how to compete and strategy and that kind of stuff. What, what are some of the things that you've learned over the years that have really helped you out? Well, uh, you know, part of it is just the way you race changes. Like you end up learning about how to maintain momentum and, and, uh, part of that starts with having the right bike setup choice. And I've always been kind of a nerd about bike stuff and giants allowed me to run kind of whatever I want in general. So I can nerd out and pick, you know, get really specific for the day and the conditions and, and the way I race with, with my equipment, mm -hmm. which is something that takes a while to know about if you're new to the sport. But as you get older in the sport, you get better and better at that. But just the way I race is totally different than it used to be. You know, when I was fresh out of college, I was a runner. I was a pretty good bike handler, but like I was a great climber and I just hang my hopes of a good result on dominating climbs or being, you know, in the mix on climbs and then hold, you know, holding people off or whatever. And now 
like knowing my limits. I just, uh, even in a big race, I'm just not able to go over a certain threshold and recover. So it's all about like letting these whippersnappers go <laughs> and then using momentum, you know, eating right and drinking right and maintaining my equipment and carrying speed through these awkward sections and intersections and like clawing back to the group. And in the, in the final moments of a race, like I'm pretty good because I don't wear myself out as much as the young guys do and in, in their attacking nature. Mm -hmm. So by the end of a two or three hour race, like, you know, my sprints as good as theirs is, and I'm as likely to win in a group type of scenario as anybody kind of, but when it comes down to just Watts per kilo, like there's dozens of people in my hometown that are better than me, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like if it, if it comes down to that, like if it's just a trainer session and I, and I haven't used Zwift, but I would be a really, really bad Zwift driver, you know, <laughs> like there's just, I don't have on paper, I don't have, uh, I don't have what it takes to be a professional bike, bike racer, but there's a lot, I have like this, all these intangibles, I guess you'd call them where, you know, it's, it's running the right tire pressure and, and making the right move in the right space and, and just being tactically more savvy than most people would be, yeah. you know, in their twenties. Yeah. And on your team, on the giant off-road team you have some younger guys as well what are the what are the things that they're like coming to you for and and that you're able to teach them that maybe you didn't know at that age or or even things you're surprised that they don't know uh it's just a lot of that tactical stuff you know thinking about you know, bike setup and like you know not not only it, well considering who's in the race and how you're going to manage to be competitive against them mm -hmm. and maybe you know set it doing weird stuff with setup that might allow you to be a con in contention in a race based on weather or there's just a lot of just, you know, by I'm a bike nerd and I just think about stuff yeah. more than other guys. Most guys just show up and it's like, well, I trained hard and I hope to do well and <laughs> they'll just run whatever. And they right. don't think about it as much. And I think about it borderline too much. So it's great to like to have these young guys cause they're super fit and they're talented. Um, and part of it is just reining them in, you know, like, <laughs> like, yeah. okay, so you really need to show how tough you are in the first lap. Right. You know, you, you've trained with a power meter enough to know that when you go over your threshold, it costs you power later and it costs you power longer than you're going to get out of this little effort. So trying to kind of teach those guys to know when to hold them and know when to fold them in terms of showing what they've got. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, patience is a big thing that I've got a lot of in bike races. And, uh, it, sometimes it, it is the strongest, my strongest suit is just my patience, you know? Yeah. You, you talked about bike setup and, and kind of nerding out over the gear side of it. Do you like to run sort of custom stuff or are you, mainly just looking at things that are available, but utilizing them sort of in the smart way. Uh, ideally it's all stuff that's sponsor friendly. That's from your sponsors and that you don't have to do anything to mm -hmm. like a case in point. Uh, one of my favorite kind of bike racing hacks was back when Adam and Craig and I were racing, we were pretty new to the giant team and we were racing in Europe doing the world cup series and stuff. And Michelin at the time made these green, we call them the green meanies. They were those green tires that, yeah, I had some of those. Yeah. They made one that was a 1.6 mud tire. Like it was almost like a cyclocross tire and wig. Huh. 
and it was absolutely useless for almost everything. <laughs> but we kept them in our bags and we'd fly all over the world with them and we'd do all these races and we'd, we'd hardly ever use them. But like every, maybe every 18 months, we'd be at a venue where it was like wet grass mm -hmm. and off camber and not that rocky and you'd use those tires and it was absolutely an unfair advantage. <laughs> like nobody, you could ride lines that nobody else could and brought you from mid pack to like the front of the race, you know, like oh, I, wow. my best world cup, I was 17th, which isn't anything to write home about. But like, if I hadn't had those tires, I would have been in the thirties probably like it was, it was magical. Yeah. And Adam was on the podium that day. I think like, you know, the two of us, we, us and another teammate, we won the world cup team, team competition. And it was mostly based on those tires and they were 26 inch little green tires that yeah. Michelin was actually selling. They, they shared tent space with us. Uh -huh. They were such garbage tires to most everybody in most every condition that they were selling them for $5 a piece out of our tent. <laughs> wow. And we're like, Hey man, don't sell those. Like that's our <laughs> secret weapon. Like throw them away or do something. But like, yeah, don't be giving those to all the people that we have to try to beat on the weekend. Yeah. You know? Put them away like, on the days when they're actually yeah. useful. <laughs> <laughs> like here's a hundred dollars. Give me 20 of them. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll just put them in my garage. So anyway, I have done custom stuff, you know, cutting tires and stuff like that. The more, the broader the offerings for for tires and, and other bike parts, the less you have to get kooky with, with that type of stuff because it's just – it's on offer. You know, When we were mm -hmm. with, with Michelin, I think there were really like three or four tires that, that we could use 15 years ago and that were a cross-country tire. And now you know, I'm with Maxxis and there are easily 100 tires yeah. that – you use between, you know, a, a fat tire crit and a, an enduro or like, yeah, some kind of enduro type event. So yeah. you don't have to get as crafty, but it does make ordering your parts for the season more of a sit down affair. And like, you have to really consider where you're going and what you're trying to do when you, you know, for instance, this year changing to two Maxis and Shimano, mm -hmm. not knowing their lineup. It's like, oh, wow, I need to like spend a night and like, confer with some of my my friends that are on the circuit and figure out what to run yeah because that you know we're spoiled for choice everybody is well yeah it sounds like that's a change from many years ago so what are some other sort of big changes you've seen in mountain bike or cross country specifically racing over the years well the bikes have you know, everybody's aware of the the massive changes that have happened in the last 25 years of mountain bikes so i mean i was I was racing on toe clips for years before oh, wow. before the SPD came out. So, you know, people are like, oh, tubeless tires, disc brakes, that's a massive deal. I'm like, man, try doing a mountain bike race with, with toe clips, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like that like disc brakes are nothing. Tubeless tires, I mean they're but they're amazing. It's like and seat droppers, like that's that's a huge deal. But like yeah. I bikes were really really terrible when i would start <laughs> racing mountain bikes you know in, in the 80s so that obviously has changed a lot and it just continues to accelerate and how how quickly everything changes but uh the racing itself has changed a lot too you know just the nature of cross-country mountain bike racing with uci and well it started with the olympics and uci and and courses changing so much what once was just a normal mountain, you could just call it a mountain bike race. Mm -hmm. Now would be probably considered a marathon event. Right. And that really 
it's kind of misleading, I think, because, you know, what, what pe- normal people do and the normal distance that people race, I don't, I don't think that a marathon event is such an outlier, you know, mm-hmm. like a marathon in, in running, coming from a running background, like that's kind of the longest event that anybody does. That's a reasonable event. Anything after that is just gets into weird ultra stuff. <laughs> fringe. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's totally fringy. It's like, man, that's not good for you. Like even a guy that run, is a good marathoner, it's like, yeah, I don't do longer stuff cause that's bad for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like it, it, I don't, I'm not crazy. I'm not running a hundred miles. So mountain biking, you know, calls it marathon. And these races are like two hours and 40 minutes long. When I was doing like Norba races in the early, well, in the late nineties as a Neo pro, they were shooting for two and a half hours, two fifteen for a finishing time, and it would rain, and we'd finish in close to three hours sometimes for oh, just wow. a, a normal event. Like, and it wasn't like, oh, that was a crazy long marathon of experience. No, it's just a, it was a mountain bike race, and it rained. Yeah. So the the, the nomenclature has changed changed a little bit, and that's why I think that kind of Olympic distance stuff is faltering in its popularity, especially in the United States. It's, it's multiple laps in, in city parks. And it's just not the, you know, the nature of how people want to enjoy riding mountain bikes, you know, but it doesn't have that frontiersman exp- exploration type of, of thing where you go out for a big loop and you see the top of the mountain and you get a view and you ride down a big hill. And yeah. A lot of that's been removed. And, uh, so that's why, you know, these epic ride events are just hugely popular and everybody loves them and uh and that's by extension that's why the gravel movement so so popular you know yeah there's no racing closer to my first mountain bike race experience than gravel you know Mm -hmm. you're on rigid bikes with you know skinny tires that you know we weren't right we were riding one nine five skin wall tires with tubes in them Mm -hmm. my gravel bike is a better mountain bike in every way than my first mountain bike was and we're riding on the same types of surfaces you know gravel roads dirt roads point to point big explorational adventure type racing and and that's uh that's why that's popular too that's that's something that uh, i think people in general and maybe western americans in particular just they really aspire to that yeah well yeah i mean you mentioned that races have changed uh, in terms of sort of the courses and the format over the years. I mean, the reason, I guess a big part of it was to make things more spectator friendly. Do you see any sort of benefits to that? I mean, are the races getting more exposure in your opinion or, or has it not really made a big difference? It's backfired. I mean, the problem is that it's a, it's a federation thing that basically all these nations need to have their Olympic path paved by courses that are similar to the Olympics. Okay. And for the Olympics, it does make a lot of sense because, you know, you watch the Olympic mountain bike race, it's sensational. You can see the whole course, there's multiple laps, you know what to expect. And it, it's, you know, it's Red Bull TV level world cup stuff is, is very similar in its, its look. Mm-hmm. And it is great to watch. And it's fun to race when, you know, when it's so tight, it gets, uh, you know, there, it's really tactical and it's, it's, it's beautiful to watch. It's, it's aggressive and fun to race. Mm-hmm. That said, it's just not, you know, you break that down to like a national level and the races are pretty weak, you know, like it's not, it's, it's made for TV, but there's no TV cameras there. 
so, you know, the, the UCI dictates that the courses have to be 5k long at maximum, right? And you have to have two pits, but you can have a two-sided pit. So it's natural <laughs> that they make a two-sided pit to make, make the two pits. Cause that makes it so you have to have less staff and it just suits everybody. Right. So that in its essence <laughs> makes the course a peanut, <laughs> right? So you have, it's got, the course has to touch itself in the middle. Right. So you have two, two and a half K laps tied by a pit. And which means that what at most you're going to have 1.25 K climb with a descent on each end of that. So it just breaks it down to these really small servings of yeah. climbs and descents and there's no flow. And, and then the courses end up, you know, these people, they, they end up making the races an hour and a half target time. Sometimes it's in the, an hour 20 something. Mm-hmm. I mean, a cyclocross race takes an hour and five minutes. So the difference, the delta between those two events, like it, it's, it's starting to, yeah, I think mountain biking starting to tread on the domain of cyclocross in terms of what it takes as an athlete and what the courses are starting to look like. Yeah. You mentioned the pit areas. I understand that outside assistance is something that you've kind of railed against a little bit over the years. What's, what's sort of your thought on that? Well, a lot of it has to do with that pit designation and making it concise and easy to service racers. You know, I, I come from, I'm on like the best run team in North America, maybe the world. Like we have tons of staff, we have tons of equipment, you know, things happen for us that don't happen for privateers. And I'm lucky in that regard, but I spent enough time as a privateer to recognize that the injustice of that, you know, yeah. if you show up as a, a journeyman racer and you just turned as a, into a pro, like how awful is it to come to a race where it, you know, it's muddy or rocky and it's easy to flat. And like these other teams have wheels and they have all this stuff and they have multiple staff and thousands of dollars worth of gear. I mean, we go to a big race and they're, you know, we would have three staff, you know, somebody feeding us bottles and then a couple mechanics and like all these wheel sets and all this crap. So to see that's a little disheartening, I would imagine. And I don't like that aspect of it, but, uh, a big part of it, you know, I think that a mountain bike should be capable of of lasting for two hours in a race scenario without yeah. having somebody work on it. And the UCI made this decision to make to make it so that a top racer, you know, the best guy in the world, if he has a small problem, isn't relegated to the back of the pack, which is fair. That like that makes sense on the surface, but the problem is what it does is it makes it more random who benefits and and doesn't from Mm -hmm. a mechanical because instead of just everybody tuning their bike to last for two hours and if you mess up you tune your bike to last for an hour and you run say one of my pet peeves tubular mountain bike tires right yeah like it shouldn't exist in nature so you run (laughs) tubulars because it is an advantage you can run super low pressure and it's light and you do that and then it's not that you flat, it's where you flat, right? So if you flat at the top of the descent, it costs you the race win, but if you flat 10 seconds before the pit, it costs you nothing. So it, it's more random than it was if you just, if everybody just had control over making their bikes last, you know? Right. Yeah. And maybe people take risk with their equipment, um, that they wouldn't otherwise take. Totally. And now they absolutely do. And it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's, you still have to stop and the races are so short now that you're kind of, it, 
30 seconds is a big deal. You know, it's like cyclocross where if you, you got to like almost work on your pit exchanges to be competitive, you're going <laughs> to stop because it's so damn tight at the front. So the whole thing just, I don't like the whole aesthetic. I don't, it's, I don't like, uh, people work on my, on my bike. I, it, it doesn't add anything to the sport and it just takes away the ability to make courses that were at one point, I think a lot better than what's on offer now. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of fits with what you're saying too, about the courses and the race format, not really fitting sort of what it, what an everyday mountain bike ride is like, you know, for people who do it just for fun, you know, I mean, if you're out on the trail and you get a flat, you got to be self-sufficient. You got to know how to fix it and it's going to take you some time. And that's just part of the, it's part of the game. Yeah. And that doesn't really fit into the whole Olympic dynamic. There's no other real Olympic sport where it's like that. <laughs> yeah. That's so equipment oriented or reliant. Totally. Like the Olympic road race or any of those things, like your road bike isn't probably going to fail. And if you do have a flat, there's wheels. Right. And I, you know, if they're drawing that parallel, then it makes total sense. But you know, and the Olympics ha having the mountain bike race in the Olympics is really cool. And I'm all for that. And I think it's great, but they're on the backside. It's, it's kind of ruined cross country racing, so to speak, you know, by it, you know, this XEO and what people call cross country now has, is just a shadow of what it once was in terms of ridership and what people care about. Like there's just nobody mm -hmm. pays attention to it and you can't, get a ride as an athlete unless you're doing doing those types of races you have to be like olympic long team or better to like make a living mm -hmm. doing so it's kind of it's brought up our sport and at the same time it's kind of cut it down but there's all these other races this gravel stuff the epic rides this you know what they call marathon racing that isn't really a marathon that's just a nice long ride in the woods mm -hmm. that stuff is still alive and well and and that's what uh, people are paying attention to yeah, well, in this day and age of Instagram and social media and stuff, being a pro mountain biker like yourself appears to be a pretty great lifestyle. But what are some of the challenges that you faced maybe early in your career or even today as a pro? Yeah, the needs of being a pro mountain biker are totally different. They've been totally rearranged from what, what it used to be when I got my first paycheck with Giant. Hmm. And I was I was racing as a pro. I guess you'd call it a privateer pro kind of with, I was with Mrazic cycles, which was this, I don't know if you're probably not familiar. No, no nope, not many people are. It's M R A Z E K that you can look up one on Google or whatever, but it's a, they were made in the Czech Republic by this guy that was a swordsmith and all the, Whoa, cool. The, uh, tubes are, are like curved, like a samurai sword kind of. Yeah. Uh, it had elevated stays, aluminum bikes. Uh, so I rode those and with, and I raced for the, the Deschutes Brewery, which is the local, the big brewery in town at the time. Well, that's a cool sponsor to have. They were super cool. They were awesome to me, and they're still like uh, just a kick-ass establishment. Like, yeah, we go there on Monday nights for locals nights still with regularity. Nice. So I was doing that, and then I got the I stepped up with Giant. And it wasn't, you know, there wasn't any social media presence and it wasn't any, there was a lot less ambassadorship stuff yeah. than, than just, oh, I'm fast and I'm young enough that I might get even faster. And that was all they kind of had to go off of, you know, mm -hmm. you talk to the manager and if they like you, they give you a shot. 
now it's like, well, what are the metrics for your social media? And like, I mean, that's, that's how people are getting support. Now you have to be fast. If you have 15,000 followers on Twitter and you're active, then you don't have to be that fast. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. if you're really fast and you're just a curmudgeon that doesn't want to deal with Instagram, then you're going to have a long road to hoe to get a meaningful contract and keep it, you know? Yeah. Well, does that shift sort of your time responsibilities? Like in the early days before social media, were you able to spend more time focusing on racing versus now? Are there like video shoots and stuff like that that you need to be doing? Yeah. I mean, me personally, like as I, you know, start to age out of the racing you know, I'm still, I still win a few things a year. I got my events that I am strangely good at and I make the most of those, <laughs> but I, I do have, you know, I have to take more responsibility in terms of, you know, producing content and some of that's social media stuff. And I'm not like some superstar on social media. Like I have maybe 5,000 followers on Instagram and stuff, but I try to make that, you know, it's a, it's a one for me, one for them type of thing mm-hmm. where, where it's, we have a, a saying like no bike, no like, like it, the core, <laughs> the core of the people that are following me are bike fans, right? Um, but people that are into cycling. So you put in a bike shot and sometimes it's just, Oh, this is my new bike. <laughs> and I hate, I hate that shit. You know, like <laughs> look at my new bike day, hashtag new bike day. Like, I don't like that. Like that's boring. It's, Oh, somebody sent me something for free and look at it. Right. Not that cool. But People love it because it's, oh, that's the new giant. People are zooming in on stuff and like, oh, look at that. That's the new wheel set or, oh, shoot, you guys are on DV, DVO suspension. That's so cool. So that stuff I do for them. And then the, the quirky stuff that involves cars or whatever funnily worded stuff in <laughs> a Chinese supermarket or whatever. That stuff's for me, you know, Yeah. the personal story stuff. Uh, and some of that stuff plays well with other people and other times it, it falls flat. But, uh, so I try to balance that. And I think, you know, that has merit. It does. It comes off a little more real than some of the other guys. Maybe that makes me a little more grounded and approachable, but, um, but yeah, I, there's that. And then I have to do a lot of, you know, video stuff and, and, you know, testing and all these, these other, you know, I wear a lot of hats at giant. Right. Yeah. What is your Instagram handle, by the way, in case people want to follow you? Decorator, D-E-C-K-E-R-A-T-O-R. Cool. Yeah. Well, no, the name's cool. <laughs> <laughs> when you say it, yeah, it's, it's like, oh, you're a decorator, but. When you see it spelled out, you're like, oh, yeah, now I get it. Oh, yeah, it's way tougher sounding when you <laughs> don't hear it. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, I think I think people do enjoy that sort of getting to know racers a little bit more because, you know, in the old days, it was hard to keep up with that stuff. You know, events would be – they would have sort of like a regional reach, if that, you know, just kind of based around who was able to show up to the race and watch that day versus now, you know – you can, you can follow Carl Decker and see exactly what he's doing, like, you know, every week. So that, that seems pretty cool to me. Yeah. It's a little more personal. It's, it's great because you, the athlete can really control which way they want to go with it. You know, if you look at some athletes and it's just strictly racing and they still have a big followership and, uh, and that's great. And then you have other people that make it more personal or funny or, you know, uh, inspirational and that that can play well too it just depends on who you are so 
we all have this platform to like develop our own little micro brands around our personalities. And that's, that is what makes people marketable as pro athletes these days. Strangely enough, you know, yeah, it's, it's a weird deal. It suits me. Like I, I, it, I try to do a good job of it and it, it gives me value within, within my team. But I, I kind of miss the days when I like, I like this, the term of letting your legs do the talking <laughs> Yeah, and just winning races. And if you win, you always look good and you don't have to say you just win. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, that there's beauty in that, but there's also, it's a really cool time to, to be alive and to be a, a, an athlete and have just a straight connection to the people that, that care about what you're doing yeah. in a way that you know, 20 years ago, there's nothing. Yeah. Cool. Well, we're going to take a break real quick, but when we come back, we're going to talk about single speed mountain biking and also enduro. Stay tuned. You can't see me, but I'm wearing an awesome single tracks hat right now. It's actually the reason my voice sounds so amazing. Okay. So maybe not, but you never know until you get a hat for yourself. Go to shop.singletracks.com to find Singletracks hats, t-shirts, stickers, tubular headwear, and can coolers. Shipping is free within the USA, and your purchase helps support the Singletracks podcast. That's shop.singletracks.com, and thank you for your support. And we're back. So, Carl, you raced enduro for a handful of years, and that seems to be a pretty hot category these days. What are your thoughts on enduro and where it's going? I think it's, it's where it's at. It started out a lot. It was totally unhomogenized. <laughs> it was much like Super D was. I used to be pretty competitive. I, I won a lot of Super Ds. I was just good at kind of figuring that out. Mm-hmm. Kind of these mass start downhill races on kind of mellow trails. Yeah. So I was maybe the world's winningest Super D guy at like national level because it wasn't really a global thing. It was kind of an American thing. Yeah. And then I transitioned into to, uh, Enduro when that move happened, which was kind of five years ago, six years ago is when that kind of happened. And I was pretty competitive in Enduro stuff and I'd win stuff here and there. But it was, you know, some of them were super, super gnarly and some of them were super peddly and it was kind of up to the promoter to decide. Mm-hmm what enduro meant to them yeah much as it was super d some of them had uh, lamont start and were a time and were mass start some were a time trial so with that in mind basically (laughs) i saw a thing happen in those first few years those formative years of enduro at least stateside basically all of the pro downhillers or you know ex-pro downhillers would bitch about the course not being gnarly it was this strange dynamic where it was totally okay to do that because that was being you know it was cool to say it's not gnarly enough well the other part of of the equation is like the ex-pro cross-country guy that like adam craig my teammate who every race you know if there's a pedally bit that suits him but it was not socially acceptable to, <laughs> to approach the promoter and say hey that, you know, could we connect these two, could we have a little more of an uphill between these two downhills or yeah. let's, let's include this flat pedaling section to give me an advantage. So it was a one way street and the more that the pro downhillers pitched and especially if they were, you know, former world champs. And I saw that that happened in a lot with a particular French guy, they would, the, all the promoter hears and often from the best riders in the sport was it's 
too peddly. It's too peddly every day. Oh, th- this stage sucks. You need to get rid of this stage or you need to sh- truncate this stage and get rid of this flat section or take this, you know, 20 minute stage and turn it into three, four minute stages to eliminate these peddly bits. And yeah. And they never heard anything from the other side just because it wasn't cool to, right. to, to voice the other opinion. So it kind of ran guys like me out of, of the sport pretty quickly, which is fine. Uh, I think now you show up to one of those races and you know kind of what you're getting into. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that the, the courses are going to be set up kind of to, to adhere to what people expect of, of, of an enduro course now. Right. But I, I kind of always like those, those early days of, of a sport where it's more ambiguous and you have to figure things out when you get there. You know, mm-hmm. then, then that, then you get this really fun mix of people from different backgrounds, you know, pro cross country guys, downhillers coming together and not knowing who's going to win and like having these great battles that go back and forth. Yeah. So it, it's, it's kind of like gravel racing is now, you know, like, it's unhomogenized and it's, it's what it is to the promoter and you show up and you fit, you figure it out. Yeah. And there's, it's attractive to me. I I like that. Yeah. That's definitely an interesting way to look at it an interesting perspective and sort of the lifespan or life cycle of these new event formats. Cause yeah, you're seeing Enduro is getting much more standardized and regulated and and all that stuff which is a good thing but then yeah you do lose out on some of the excitement uh that it had sort of in the early years yeah those formative years are fun when you know you don't know what to expect and you have to to play it live and everybody's kind of in the same boat yeah now everybody's in the same boat it's just that the cross-country guys aren't showing up anymore yeah. Enduro is established and, you know, it's not the buzzword it was three years ago, four years ago. Um, I think it's healthy and I think it's, you know, I'm excited to see it do well. Like Adam and I were talking like eight or nine years ago, like, why don't we do bike races? Like we do rally car races where you just transit and then you, you, you know, you do this big ass mountain bike race and then you just race the downhills. Mm-hmm. Like that'd be super neat to put together. Like nobody's doing that. And then they were doing it in Europe a little bit. And now it's in the States and, and, uh, they're doing it and yeah. it's, it's, it's cool. That's a really neat, uh, type of bike racing. I just am not able to be very competitive <laughs> anymore. So I'm finding some other stuff to do. Right. Well, yeah, let's talk about that other stuff. Something completely different, uh, in a lot of ways. So single speed and you've raced in a lot of these single speed cross country world championship events and they're, they're kind of crazy, right? Do you have some sort of favorite stories from those races? Uh, yeah, I mean, they are, they, they can be crazy They're It's absolutely astounding that they happen every year because <laughs> they've been going on for like 25 years or something. Yeah. And, uh, there's no federation and there's no rules and there's no, you know, make an appeal to some board that allows you to run <laughs> this race. You yeah. just show up to the race and then the night before the race, they have a decider and it usually involves drinking <laughs> and you, and then you win via some test of courage or fortitude. You win the right to host the race in your hometown the next year. Yeah. And it always happens the next year. This, this person, this functional drunk puts on a race and you know, hundreds of people show up and then it, it perpetually continues to happen and it's 
it's mind boggling that, that it works out, but it's a great event. It's, it's really, truly international and it's, and it's feel, uh, it, it goes continent to continent at random, even though, you know, it's somehow it, it could have been, in, you know, people from Colorado really wanted to win it for next year. And now it's going to be in Slovenia. Hmm. Wow. It was in New Zealand last year, two years before that I was in Japan racing it. Oh, wow. And people from all over the globe, you know, it's locally it's popular, but there's always a bunch of non-native English speakers there and people having a good time from all over the place. And it's just weird, wacky, and sometimes wild. And it's, I, I love it. It's a, it's a neat event. Yeah. Well, I mean, our single speeders, we did a podcast episode uh, that I think we titled something like single speed. Is this some sort of a cult? And <laughs> I mean, it seems like that, like when you go to these other countries for the championship, like, do you find sort of like-minded people are showing up at this? I mean, it must be really gratifying i guess to see like sort of this tribe that's spread all over the world yeah it's uh it's really weird that it's this way but like uh there's a certain type of person that's into single speeds and uh it's counterculture and there's that whole you know non-corporate feel to it you know i work for the biggest bike corporation (laughs) in the world so that's not what brings me to it for me it's just the purity of of the ride like I really like rigid single speeds, like no suspension, no gears. And you say, ooh, because where you ride, that might be awful. But where <laughs> I ride, it's actually really fun. Like I can ride a, after a good rain, I could ride a road bike on most of the trails around Bend, Oregon oh, wow. without puncturing and going faster than your average mountain biker would down them. They're that smooth and buff and flowy. So for me, that's, you know, that's my particular flavor. And on the trails that I'm on around here, it's really cool. Your bike's really fast and light. And when you stand up, it doesn't bob and weave. It just, just shoots forward. And it's, it makes you take totally different lines and work really hard and these approaches to little climbs. And, you know, occasionally you end up, you know, sprinting to make it up some climb because it gets steep at the top and you end up skidding to square up some corner on a climb that nobody's ever skidded into in the history of the trail (laughs) because nobody ever would. So you're riding a totally different, you know, a a trail that you've ridden a hundred times becomes new again. And that's, that's super cool. Yeah. So that's what speaks to me about it. Some people, it's just, you know, they're contrarians and they want to ride bikes and not be, to be, uh, they've got this kind of Mennonite (laughs) simplicity and, yeah. Yeah. The simplicity thing, I think, is big for most everybody. Um, sometimes it's a push it back against the corporate feel of mountain bike racing. And sometimes it's a, it's it's not. But uh, it takes all kinds. And there's a bunch the races are filled with everything from pro, skinny pro dudes to guys that smoke cigarettes outside the bar the night before <laughs> and, and hardly ride at all. But it's just this, you know, they're out there in their wet denim. <laughs> And they're not joking. Like that's what they do ride in, yeah. you know, like, yeah. like that's, that's their thing. You know, I'm a machinist from Detroit and I like single speeds yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, I like palm balls too. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, is, is the world championship race, are there like corporate sponsors or anything? Is there a rule book? There's no rule book. It's just kind of a, it's like tradition, right? I mean, I've heard it's totally a tradition. Yeah. It's, it's a great tradition. And the, it, so the rules kind of as they stand are that it's, you have one gear and basically I think don't be a dick 
is often one, <laughs> of, one of the ones they try to convey. And then, and that, and many other sub rules fall under that one. So you can kind of add, add whatever you want under that heading, but, uh, and don't win if you don't want the tattoo. Right. That's the one I was thinking of. So yeah, tell people about that a little bit, what that means. So if you win the single speed worlds, uh, often these races don't have results. They only have a male and female winner and then DFL and DFL stands for dead and last with a different word. Than middle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so the winner of the men's and women's race, there's no age groups or any of this stuff. It's just those people get a tattoo. They are forced to have a tattoo, but they can choose not to. They'll just, they should never show up to one of these races again. They choose <laughs> right. not to. I won the tattoo in 08. My teammate, Adam, won it in 07. And my, my other teammate, Kelly, did as well that year. And yeah, it's it's a fun... The pe- the people that win these races are not accidentally winning them. They're, they're fast bike riders that are trying hard to win something, usually. Yeah, I mean, it must be really competitive. Yeah, I mean, the guy that won this year, uh, he's our national champion for marathon racing and he's a red bull athlete. He's a legit dude. There are two or three of the top five guys in North America were at this race, uh, last weekend then. Wow. So yeah. And, and it was, you know, it was competitive. I was racing with those guys. I, I, I put the course together and, and was involved in putting on the race, but I was able to jump in and race as well. And it was fun. Like, you know, a bunch of really fast, like Olympic caliber athletes and we're riding around, you know, stopping and having bacon and like, <laughs> you know, drinking a little bit of beer maybe here and there. <laughs> and, uh, and like kind of, I like, you know, the people that want to win are trying to get out of there. And the people that are like, just trying to, you know, have a good time are like imposing kind of a uh, pressure to stay there and relax <laughs> so, <laughs> at these feed zones. So it was, uh, it's a funny day and a, a great you know great vibe and what's what's neat about the single speed thing is that people put their expectations away and they they just enjoy the event there's very little complaining about anything because that's just not in the scope of what <laughs> single speeding is like right. people are really looked down on for having having bad things to say about whatever it's just like deal with it the single speed world is going to be a, you know the guy that yeah you're used to suffering and yeah you're not nothing's really gonna bother you all that much right it's just yeah just be cool that's kind of what single <laughs> speed racing is right yeah we put on a very legitimate race relative to to some of them i mean it was well the course was pretty well marked and there was good aid stations and all that stuff but we you know we didn't put out the course profile or we didn't put out the course map gps file until midnight the night before Oh wow! Just so that, like you know, just so so people weren't practicing, so they you know go hang out at the bar and do the other little you know we had concerts and all sorts of other fun events uh, planned for the late week. So we wanted people to to not be out there practicing and to just kind of enjoy riding other trails around town or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like you were really instrumental in putting on the event and organizing and stuff uh, in your hometown of Bend. Oregon. Uh, what, what did you guys have to do to earn the right to host? Were you part of that? I, so I went to Japan and was on the team that was trying to bring it to bend in 2000, well, three years ago. And we failed. It was some (laughs) kind of weird contest and it was, you know, it was Japan. So it was obviously 
<laughs> weird and awkward <laughs> and awesome. I love Japan. And uh, so we failed. And then last year, four of my friends went down to New Zealand and won the contest to bring it back to Ben this year. I didn't go down there. I, yeah, it was, it conflicted with something else, but, uh, they went down there and it came down to like some weird eating contest stuff. <laughs> and the girl that went down there with them was amaze balls at oh, eating wow. weird stuff. <laughs> like, Oh, here's a giant uncooked fish. eye. <laughs> like eat this. And like all these other like tough guys were like throwing up in their mouths and like <laughs> having to like tap out. And she was just like wolfing down all this putrid, wow. these putrid like Maori uh, delicacies. Wow, uh, that's what. So that's what that's what determines whether you're fit to host Singles Beat Worlds. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. So our our decider this year was it was the qualifying was Galanda quaffing, which is like throwing the beer big beer steins down a table, catching them and drinking them, <laughs> and it's like a team event. Mm -hmm. And then the two finalists had one hour to build boats from three bike boxes and three duct tape rolls. And then there was a boat race out around this island in the river. Oh, wow. It's light floodlights. It's like 10 o'clock at night, freezing cold. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I learned something about how to build a boat by watching, by watching uh, Durango fail miserably at that. <laughs> but it was, uh, it was a neat event. Yeah. And next year, be shocked. I'll be shocked when it all works out, and they have a great event next year. Yeah, that's crazy. So we mentioned a couple times. Uh, you talked about driving cars and rally car stuff. So tell us a little bit about that. If you could race sort of your dream car, what would it be? Well, so I I race stage rally stuff, which in America is not a real popular thing. So a lot of mountain bikers might know about it, but it's basically enduro racing with a car on gravel roads. So you have, you have transits where you just drive on public roads with a street legal car, and then you get to a, a closed gravel road, sometimes a paved road, and then you leave on your minute and they, and you race against the clock with the co-driver giving you, giving you pace notes. So you have pre-ridden, pre-driven at, at a slow speed, all these roads, and you give yourself notes and then your co-driver reads them with impeccable timing right at the time you need them. And then you know, you know exactly what's around the corner and you yeah. commit to you can commit to every corner as if you've been on down the road a hundred times. So it's super fun and awesome and dangerous and scary. And it's, it's, <laughs> uh, it's really, really expensive. Yeah. As car racing tends to be. Yeah. It's one of those things. So we did, let's see, in 2010, we did the whole national series or most of it Whoa. for rally racing. Um, we traveled to the Midwest for a couple of races, did a snow race up in Michigan, did a bunch of all the stuff out West. And that qualified me to do the X games in 2010. So I raced the, like in the LA Coliseum, the super rally Whoa, thing cool. in 2010. It was super cool. Probably the coolest day of my life. Like it was just amazing deal to be lining up with these heroes of the sport and like racing door to door with like tens of thousands of people watching there. And yeah. then it's live on TV and people from bars and stuff are sending me texts. I just saw you on TV. Uh, was, <laughs> and you know, the car, we'd soup the car up and it was amazing and, and just scary fast. And that was super, super cool. But at the same time, like it, 
since then I've kind of retracted from racing rallies just because I've put a lot of time and money and energy into the, to it that year. And I had a great time and that was money well spent, but you know, diminishing returns, what they are, you know, the second yeah. ice cream cone is worth what the first ice cream cone is. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, it's the same cost and, and the same risk of life and limb. So I haven't been doing too much of it. The car is in the garage and it's, it's running. It's just, I, I needed to make some, some changes to it to make it more competitive and safer. But, uh, Adam and I were doing, we were going faster in this slow car than it. We were going faster for less money than anybody in the United States in rally there for a little while. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And I mean, it, it was still costing us like $4,000 a weekend. <laughs> wow. And we were spending like, I mean, some of these, the big teams we'd get fourth or sixth or something. We were right in that, that sweet spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, the guys that are winning are spending six figures every weekend. Jeez. Like, and not small six figures. Sometimes yeah. <laughs> it was, wow. it was crazy. So anyway, if I was going to race, if I got to drive any car, I don't, I couldn't handle a formula one car. I'd kill it and I wouldn't be able to fathom <laughs> the abilities of the car. I think like a, a modern WRC car, like any of the little hot hatches with all the newest stuff, it'd be really neat to see what a properly set up rally car feels like because mm-hmm. my setup is, is just stuff I've learned. Right. And I just have so little knowledge and it's just, you know, my, my crew chief is my dad. And we just <laughs> like go eat hot dogs during the services because we don't know what to do to make the car any better. So, uh, it'd be really neat to drive like a, a you know, a really well-prepped high-end WRC car uh, on gravel roads and see what that feels like. It sure looks cool. Yeah. Is there a lot of crossover, you think, from mountain bike racing to rally car? I think there is. In the other direction, maybe not quite as much, but Adam and I certainly had a leg up on our competition regionally and even nationally just because we had this this breadth of experience in racing. Like, mm-hmm. we don't get nervous, you know? We, we show up to races and we get we're able to sleep and we're able to get done and we're able to eat. And like, we we're used to preparing to be our best and then like being focused and on and making things happen. Mm-hmm. And, and, and at the same time conserving and, and making your equipment last for the length of the event. Yeah. So the two of us working together, were a pretty, pretty strong team. He was always navigator. I always drove cause the car is mine. And he's, <laughs> he's good at navigating, honestly. So, uh, yeah, it was, I think it, it, it helped that we were mountain bikers when we got into rally racing for sure in a lot of ways. And, uh, I don't, I don't think it works the other way though. Being a rally driver doesn't make you into a, right. a real competitive mountain bike rider. There's a lot, there's a lot of, uh, other stuff that goes into that. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, Carl, uh, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. This has been really fun, and uh, I think I've learned a lot. Hopefully, our listeners have as well, so thank you. Hey, my pleasure. Anytime. Good talking with you. So you can keep up with the Single Tracks podcast by following us on Facebook or in your podcast app. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Peace. Peace.